Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On this episode, you'll be hearing from my good friend, Jeremy Smith, who is the founder and president of Rethink 315, which is an apologetics organization based here in the St. Louis area. Jeremy and I have taught alongside one another at a number of apologetics-related events over the past decade. And before I decided to talk with him about the mission of this new organization he recently founded, I decided to ask him how he got interested in apologetics in the first place. I don't ever remember a time when I didn't believe. My childhood theology, I guess you could call it Christianity light. Like I I believed that God was this bearded dude in the sky and he, you know, looked like Jerry Garcia or Santa Claus or whatever. And and I believed that that he had, uh, like Santa Claus, like a naughty and nice list. I believed that he had a son named Jesus, right? And Jesus did magic and wanted to live in my chest, according to my grandmother. I believed that, like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is one of my earliest beliefs. And then because of a lot of uh, suffering, and I you know, was, for the most part, raised by a single mom, and a lot of backstory there that we don't need to unpack right now, but I just saw all this bad stuff going on, and I started wondering, God, like, are you hearing my prayers? Like, are they making it past the ceiling? I, I don't doubt that you're there. But I don't think that you care about me and my mom. Mm. So this became uh, an objection. How old are you when you're thinking those kind of thoughts? Good question. So um, I am pretty sure that it was right around the time my mom married a very abusive guy. So I I was probably in second, third, Hmm. maybe fourth grade when I started feeling those objections. I didn't start articulating them until I was maybe in my teens. Um, And then, of course, you know, my theology evolved, right? Just like my behavior. And I stopped believing that God was was all good. I mean, I I didn't have a lot of trouble with him being all powerful and maybe all knowing and, you know, omnipresent, all these other omnis, but all good. I'm not so sure. Interesting. Yeah. And so I started you know, behaving badly. And that, that landed me in a situation where, you know, I, I hit rock bottom and then found out rock bottom had a basement. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and this, you know, it's, it's part of my story and I've talked about this publicly, so I don't mind sharing this with you, but I know prison time was involved. <laughs> it, it's, it, you're not wrong. I mean, it's, it's actually true. I got arrested when I was 15 for fighting I got arrested again when I was 16 for fighting. I got arrested again at 17 for, you know, guess what, right? Fighting. And I was tried as an adult. And so while I was in jail, I started to question my life choices for good reasons, right? And I started feeling something that I can only describe as like a Holy Spirit inspired conviction. I knew that I had misbehaved. And it wasn't just because I got locked up. It was my relationship with my own mom, 
my relationship with my friends. Like, I mean, the question was like, what have I become? Like, I used to be such a nice kid. Like, how am I here sitting in jail at 17? Like, I, I did, the punishment that I was given was actually light compared to all the other things that I had done that I didn't get caught for. Um, and I knew that. Like, I knew that deep down. And, and it was almost as if this rough exterior was just smoothed away and I was just face-to-face with my sin and my rebellion. And I knew, I knew that God did not put me on this planet to behave that way. And I had never really cracked the Bible. I had heard little quotes and snippets, and I never really went to church, uh, at least not voluntarily. I think I went a couple of Christmases and Easter's, right? And I started exploring scripture, wondering if if there were answers in there. Because again, I'm questioning my life choices, but I'm also questioning everything. Well, how old are you now? 17 years 17. old. Did yeah. you find any, like when you start exploring scripture for the first time in your life, did you find any of it was hard to believe? Um, when I was in jail, the answer to that is actually no. Huh. Um, when I was a kid and I would play Bible roulette, like when I would, you know, like you, yeah. you flip open the Bible, you put your finger on uh-huh. a verse and that's like your fortune cookie verse for right. the day. I would end up in like weird places like Leviticus. I remember even as a kid thinking, this doesn't make any sense. So yes, I was confused by things when I was a kid. And of course, you know, as an adult, I've been confused by things too, Mm -hmm. which is part of the reason why I love apologetics, theology, church history, et cetera. But in jail, I started with John's gospel. And uh, by the way, this is a very long answer to a short question, (laughs) but this is how I got into apologetics. Right. So in John's gospel, 15th chapter, 15th verse, Jesus says, um, look, guys, I'm not calling you slaves. Slaves don't know their master's business. Everything that my dad has told me, I'm telling you. Therefore, you're friends, not slaves. Now, this is extremely important because I told you about my objection, uh, thinking that God didn't care about me and my mom. Hmm. But as a teenager, that that feeling, that subconscious objection, I started putting words to it. And as a teenager, uh, whenever I would encounter Christians, I had this this tagline, right? Like, why would I want to be a slave to a distant God who enforces a bunch of, you know, arbitrary, silly rules that are just designed to keep us from having fun? Um, that God doesn't care about me, doesn't care about my mom, and I don't understand these stupid rules that are being enforced. That was my core objection, man. And in the red letters of this dusty county jail Bible, the creator of the universe, right, Jesus, just answered my objection. And I don't think it was as much an intellectual objection as it was an emotional objection, but... It was a roadblock, nonetheless, that was making it hard for me to see Jesus clearly. Um, And when he answered that objection, Shane, I I mean, it was in that moment that I got saved. You know, I was born again, regenerated, converted, whatever word you want to use, but that's when it happened for me. I'm almost positive. And so that being said, when I got out of jail, I worked so hard to make amends with all of my family members, with all of my friends, and, you know, with, with like broken relationships, every kind you can imagine. I wanted to make things right. I wasn't perfect, but I really wanted to make things right with people. And uh, I noticed right out of the gate that my friends were surprised to learn that I was a professing Christian and wanted to know why. I believed these things. That's where apologetics really kicks in. That's where it kicked in, Shane, because it didn't take long for me to realize that as powerful as my story is and was to me personally, experientially, subjectively, it didn't have the kind of convincing power that I thought it did or thought it should. Like I couldn't just ask somebody to borrow my experience or even borrow my my faith, right? Um, I had faith in something that really made sense to me. 
But I, I just, like a lot of new converts, I, I was just saying, look, I, I once was lost, but now am found. Like, I didn't realize what I know now. And I want you to see it. I want you to experience it and, and look at how well I'm doing. I'm not the guy I used to be. And you know it. But the response was, yes, we can see a change. And I'm glad that that worked for you, Jeremy. Now the relativism is kicking right. in. And, and yet, you know, the argument could be made that if you lived on the other side of the planet, something else could have been this change agent in your life. Or maybe if you were a part of Bo Oprah's Book of the Month Club, <laughs> that would have changed your life. Yeah. Or maybe you discover hot yoga like my Aunt Sharon or whatever it is. And I realized, like, I, I need something else. I have to explain this in a way that corresponds to some objectivity outside of my own experience, right? Yeah. My apologetics journey wasn't motivated by my own doubts. It was motivated by my desire to help others to see that Christianity corresponds to reality yeah. and that whether or not we believe it's true has no bearing on its truthfulness, right? Like it's either true or it's not. It doesn't matter how we feel about it or what right. we think about it. And it is grounded and rooted in some testable objective answers and reasons. And, and I, and I started getting into apologetics as a matter of fact, I think it was around that time that I caught wind of this funny show called The White Horse Inn. Am I allowed to mention that here? Huh. <laughs> I may have heard of that show. You may have heard of that show. Uh, I was a big fan of talk radio, and I, I listened to all kinds of preachers and teachers, and I was the guy that would, you know, I'd send in five bucks to get that CD. You know what I mean? Like, that was me. <laughs> and then God providentially put me in a thrift store in the, the book aisle, and pointed me to mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis, that's right. And I bought it so that I could give it to my friend Nate, who was not a Christian at the time. And I wanted to be able to, to talk with him about this book and these ideas, because I was getting nowhere with Nate. You know, we would have these late night conversations. He was a roommate of mine, actually. And we would have these late night conversations, and it just wasn't really going anywhere. And so, uh, so, so discovering mere Christianity, reading that book cover to cover, and just eating it up. And another thing that happened too, Shane, I was one of those guys that was like, well, I have Jesus, but I don't really need the church, right? I love Jesus, but I'm not so sure about organized religion. And, and, and so, uh, and it's, you know, it's a silly objection, right? When people say that to me these days, I say, so do you prefer disorganized religion? Right. But at the time, right, this was yeah. where I was at as a young guy and didn't grow up in church. So, uh, you know, that was a, an understandable posture, but I got saved at 17 and then I was very evangelistic with not a lot of Bible study and no church, right? Just you and Jesus. Just me and Jesus, man. <laughs> and, and, and my, you know, my desire to see other people get saved. And, and, I think and a little help from C.S. Lewis. I got a lot of help from C.S. Lewis in the early days. And then later on discovered, you know, there's just so much out there that, that, that you can turn to. But when I was 23 or so is when I started going to church and I right out of the gate, listened to these career evangelists that were like talking about all the conversions that they counted from the week before. And it was this easy believism, you know, kind of decisional, uh, I mean, you, you know, multi-level marketing kind of approach. Kind of. Yeah. Yes. And because my career track was consultative sales, mm. I knew these tactics and strategies, because this is what my sales manager was teaching me to do, right? Mm. Answering objections, going for the close, right? Always be closing. And I don't know, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And not to mention, because I had spent more than half my life at that point as a non-Christian, as a skeptic, as a scoffer, I felt like it was important for me to reach the kind of people that I used to hang out with and, and actually still hung out with. Like I tried to go back to my community as a missionary. And so I, I wanted to reach skeptics and scoffers. And I remember thinking these evangelistic tactics and practices, these would not work with my friends. Yeah. 
I was finding in my own circle of influence with my friends and my, I guess you could say, mission field that just honest conversations about big ideas was where I was seeing the most fruit. I wasn't trying to close deals. Mm -hmm. I was trying to have conversations about things that matter. Right. You know, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Why does it even matter? And I wanted my friends to know that those were important questions to every human that's ever lived, right? And so apologetics for me was a tool to help my friends see Jesus more clearly because for you know whatever reason, a lot of my friends had intellectual objections. And, and it was a lot of trial and error. Yeah. And when I discovered C.S. Lewis, and then I had these conversations with my friend Nate, which by the way, he not only did he become a Christian, but he married a Christian woman. They've got, I think, three or four kids. Mm. They actually rehabbed an old church. He's part of Young Life. What a wonderful success story, right, of, of what God can do in the life of yeah. somebody. And and it's not because of C.S. Lewis. It's not because of Jeremy. You and I both know, right, who's doing the heavy well, lifting. Well, he can talk through donkeys, I mean. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, but God ordains the means as well as the end. And, and, and for Nate, he needed to see something beyond people's testimonies. Right. And he found that in Lewis. And then of course, a thousand other things that God did in his life after he and I, you know, barely even talked anymore. And yet I do believe that the seeds that were planted by Lewis and his old goofy buddy, Jeremy talking into the wee hours of the night about Jesus, it was pleasing to God in those moments in my little circle of influence that um, classical evidential apologetics really was helpful in terms of producing fruit And again, not everybody got saved, but not many people said, you're an absolute knuckle-dragging, anti-intellectual, anti-scientific, backwoods weirdo for believing what you believe, right? And, and, you know, and I guess this is important to say too, Shane, is um, selfishly in my pride, I think I also got into apologetics because... I really wanted people to know how right I was. Hmm. It's like, what did Luther say about us being, you know, simultaneously sinners and saints, right? Like uh, our motives are always mixed on this side of eternity. And I'm well aware of that. And, and, you know, of course, only God knows the ratios. I think hopefully by God's grace that nowadays my ratios are a little more uh, imbalanced. Hopefully there's a larger portion of my motive that that just wants to glorify God and a smaller portion that just wants to be right. Uh, Or in in other cases, I don't want to be seen as dumb. You talked about the ineffective nature of appealing to testimony because they say that's good for you. When I talk to Christians, and I do this a lot, you know this, I, I do man on the street interviews with people. Typically, people say it's best to give your testimony because people can't refute that. As a brief example of what I'm talking about there, here are some interviews I recorded at a Christian convention a little more than a decade ago. What, in your opinion, is more important, sharing your testimony or apologetics? Uh, Sharing the story of how God has worked in your life. Oh, your story. I think apologetics is kind of outdated now especially in a postmodern context, people aren't looking to be convinced with logical, you know, conclusions. They're really looking to be convinced of a loving community. And I think when the church models that, that'll be more convicting than to prove something. It's an interesting question. I'm, I'm a lawyer, and I hate apologetics. I have absolutely no use for them. I think with the testimony, they can't argue and say, oh, no, no, that didn't happen. That's not like that. Well, actually, yes, it did. It's me. So there's no room for argument. So I think oftentimes that might be the best bet. I don't think there's a doubt in today's postmodern society. It's sharing your testimony. What 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 has God done in your life? I'd say sharing your testimony (laughs) because it's personal. And anytime you're telling your own story, that's going to affect people more than something that they might not be able to relate to. And if, I mean, you have instant credibility because it happened to you. I don't know. I think the best way is just to love them and not to try to argue them to Christianity. I guess having a transformed life would probably be the best way and people seeing the genuine love of Christ through you. I think it's just to try to to be the gospel. I think if they see 
us living as best we can through the Spirit, what it means to be a Christian, that's more convincing than anything. I've never seen anyone argued into the kingdom. I just don't think it ever works. You can really only share your own life story and your personal experience because no one can refute that. They can't refute that being the concern of the Christian kind of indicates to me that they don't want to get into the factual claims because they don't want to have to defend something that could be refuted. What do you think about that? I agree with most of what you said. Most everybody that has experienced some like positive life change, there's some, you know, corresponding thing that helped them, right? Like maybe some impact event or some new thing that they're doing, some new practice or belief or whatever it is, right? Yes, that's very subjective. That's very relative. And that's not exactly helpful. I mean, it could be practically helpful for you, but the question is, is it actually true for them? You know? Indeed. Yeah. yeah. So th- that that's where I'm going. Like I always add this disclaimer and that is if your testimony doesn't correspond to reality, if it's not supported by the facts, then it's not helpful at all. Yeah. Like it, it's actually, you're, you're, you're either lying or delusional or whatever. And so I believe that sharing your personal testimony is not the gospel. You can share your personal testimony and never get to the gospel. I encourage students, I encourage them, I say, get your testimony dialed in, know your story. But don't conflate your testimony with the gospel and don't conflate your testimony with other forms of evidences that could be helpful if people are asking you follow-up questions. Testimony is really helpful at that relational level. And and there is a piece, you know, to it that, that is very pragmatic, like, hey, this has helped me in some tremendous ways. And yet, Unless this really does correspond to reality, then it's no better or worse than anything else that helps people, right? I started talking about, like, if you were to explain the gospel to someone, the the gospel according to Jeremy, what would it look like and how close would it be to the gospel according to Matthew? You know, Mm. Matthew doesn't spend any time talking about himself. (laughs) He keeps talking about what Jesus did. And when he did this, it fulfilled you know, what the prophets had written. It's all objective, really. And I just think we may have missed the objective nature because we're such a subjective culture. I agree. Although I'll I'll add this, when we think about the gospel, um, I, I usually think about the gospel in two different ways. Uh, one is the long version, Genesis to Revelation. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Creation, fall, the law, the prophets, redemption in Christ, and then restoration in Christ. That's the answer that like Tolkien nerds would say if you really want to understand Lord of the Rings, read the Cimmerillion. That's right. <laughs> yes. Because it, it, it's all part of the story and, and it's a world building endeavor. Right. And, and, and yet at the same time, um, if I only have a couple of minutes with somebody, then I'm going straight to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, perfect. Like verse. you've taught yeah, me, right? <laughs> but, but, here, but here's the neat thing about 1 Corinthians 15. Because, you know, in my line of work, I talk with a lot of pastors. And I've actually had pastors say, you know, we, we don't mess with apologetics and we don't mess with all the evidences and the arguments. We just preach the gospel here. And on a couple occasions... I, uh, you know, pulled out my Bible or if there was a Bible nearby, I'd say, hey, can we just talk about this gospel that you preach for a minute or two? Let's open up right to first Corinthians 15th chapter. And, and let's just go in a couple of verses here and let's look at what Paul actually says, right? That he delivered to us uh, first importance, what he also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, uh, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And it goes on and on and on to essentially lay out these proofs and lines of argumentation that actually makes up the gospel message. This is what Paul received and what he passed on. It really is a series of truth proclamations. It's a line of reasoning. It's a line of argumentation. He's doing apologetics in his gospel presentation. The gospel itself is rooted in history, which is testable, and actually demands like some verification. Some of these folks are dead, but a lot of them aren't. Go ask them, right? I think that's something that that a lot of Christians forget. Uh, Christians in leadership, particularly, and and I think we need to you know recapture you know this quest for evidences and proofs because 
it's baked in to the gospel message, according to Paul. And, and I tell students, I will say, take a cue from Paul. Get through the evidences first, mm-hmm. right? Explain, at the very least, sin, Jesus, cross, resurrection, right? At the very least, make sure that those key points are being highlighted. If you forget that, you're maybe not sharing the gospel. Uh, And so, you know, testimony is not the gospel. It is possible to share your testimony and forget about the gospel and fail to share the gospel. And so I'm always saying to students, don't forget to share the gospel. So the name of your organization is Rethink 315, and you're convinced that we need to rethink some of our apologetic engagements. What are some of the things you're convinced that we need to rethink? Well, what we're encouraging people to rethink is, you know, how we define Christian apologetics and how we apply 1 Peter 3.15 in our lives. I think that most apologists, um, they look at 1 Peter 3.15 as like the, you know, the apologist proof text. And oftentimes we forget that that always be ready to give an answer sentence is, is like sandwiched between these two other really important ideas. Idea number one, set apart Christ the Lord as holy. At the very least, for those of us that love apologetics and love ideas and discussions and debates and arguing, at the very least, it means Christ alone, right? That Jesus is holy. I am not holy. So I should never, ever, ever, ever look down my nose at somebody who doesn't know the things that I know. I should never approach these conversations from some place of superiority, which I think is a real temptation for apologists. For me, I'm a recovering jerk, I like to tell people. And a lot of people that love apologetics and theology and debate and arguing and all of that, I think we tend to love being right more than we love people. And so the first part of 1 Peter 3.15 is set apart Christ the Lord is holy, God is holy, I am not. I'm actually very sinful, so there's a degree of humility that I need to bring in to every evangelistic or, let's say, apologetic conversation, which I think those things overlap in, you know, in so many ways that I, I almost never separate them these days. And then, of course, there's the middle bit that we all love, right? Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that's in you. And then the most important thing is actually the last part of the verse. It says, do this with gentleness and respect. If we're not loving the person in front of us, if we're not loving God, loving neighbor, if we don't care more about that person than we care about being right, I think we're missing the most important bit of being a Christian, and that is to do it with love. And I really don't do this perfectly. This is one of the reasons why I'm passionate about it, because this is a lesson to myself, right? If I'm being rude, dismissive, proud, while I'm doing apologetics. You can call it apologetics, but don't call it Christian apologetics. You you say that we might even need to rethink the meaning of the word apologetics itself. What do you mean by that? Yes. um, So this word apologia, you know, a fair translation is defense, right? And yet, like a lot of these ancient words, it's nuanced and and it's it there's a there's a richer definition and you can look at it in lots of different ways this word i've been told can also be translated to mean an explanation or an answer or more literally a word back mm-hmm. and so that word defense i think sometimes carries some baggage because we get these courtroom pictures and we start thinking about lawyers and cross examinations yeah. and leading questions and and, I, and again, there's room for that. Like right. I, I'm not against any of that in the proper context. But as I'm chatting with my neighbor, you know, like perhaps there's a better way to think about this. Like this is not a courtroom setting. This is not a formal debate. This is just a chat with buddies, right? And if and, it is a formal debate, a lot of Christians might just think, okay, I'm not equipped to do that. And it scares them from doing it at all. Exactly, Shane. And this is why... Our programmatic approach to apologetics, I actually think it's it's created a bit of a monster in the church. 
sometimes I'll start talks on apologetics with these questions. How many of you in the room consider yourself to be card-carrying Christian apologists, right? And very few people will raise their hand. Because again, they're thinking, oh, well, you know, William Lane Craig or yeah. Josh McDowell mm-hmm. or Nancy Piercy or, or, you know, pick your person, right? And um, and then I'll explain to them, like, you know, when, when Peter wrote this, here's some of the things that were going on. And he wasn't writing primarily to lawyers or professional debaters. And this idea that apologists should be professional debaters or academics with lots of letters behind their names yeah. or stuffy, proud intellectuals, right? Um, all these caricatures, like I think it's just blown out of the water when you really look at the kinds of people that Peter was writing to and the kinds of questions that they were being asked to answer. And so the next questions I'll ask after my talk are, you know, how many of you have ever answered a question from a non-Christian? How many of you have ever opened your mouth to respond when somebody asks you about church or the Bible or why you pray or why you do or don't do certain things. Well, the minute that you open your mouth to offer a response, you're doing apologetics. Like you are literally a Christian apologist. Now, some answers are better than others. And yet the minute you open your mouth to offer an answer or type an answer, you're doing apologetics. So the question isn't, you know, who are the apologists? Who aren't the apologists? Uh, should we do apologetics? Should we not do apologetics? The question is, as you answer questions, are you doing it well? Are yeah. you doing it with gentleness and respect? Are you bringing glory to God as you're trying your best to love your neighbors? And and are you loving your neighbors enough to offer them a good answer? Yeah. If you're like, living a scandalous life, if you're not a trustworthy person, they're not going to trust your answer. Bingo. I think that's kind of what Peter's getting at there. If you got to set apart Christ as holy, you have to be a good representative of this king in all your life. Otherwise, yes. otherwise the argument is not going to go far. That's right. We're, we're heralds of the gospel. We're ambassadors for the king. Like All of these things come into play. And that's a big part of what we're trying to help students, especially students, but also parents, pastors, right. and educators, because they spend more time with the students than we do. Yeah. We want them to see that apologetics really is a head, heart, hands endeavor, and it's not less than the cosmological argument or the minimal facts approach to the resurrection or the reliability of the Old and New Testament, archaeological evidence. All of that stuff is just as important now as it as it, it was, and yet it's okay to have conversations outside of those categories. Yeah. I do think that it's important for Christians to move away from this canned answer, programmatic approach to apologetics and to answering questions. Whatever question the person in front of you is asking, well, that's your apologetics task. Exactly. Just answer the question that's actually being asked. That is such an important point because I think too often, whether you're talking about evangelism or apologetics, it's just too programmatic. I mean, Peter doesn't say... Be always ready to hand this particular booklet to someone, you know, from the famous (laughs) apologist. He says, be always ready to give an answer, a word back. So if you get too programmatic where you're not listening to what the question was in the first place and you just start giving them your spiel, guess what? They're going to tune you out very quickly. (laughs) But if you're tuning into them and you're asking questions, you're engaging with the questions the person's asking, that's the sweet spot of apologetics, isn't it? It sure is. And... It's the sweet spot for friendship. And life. For life, for relationship, for dialogue. Now more than ever, it's just so important to really be in tune with the individual that you're talking to. And this is why, you know, part of our mission now is to not answer any questions until we know what they are. One of the things that Peter says there that I don't think most of our churches give a lot of thought to this, be always ready. Like, think about the implications of that line. Be always ready. What does that mean in terms of discipleship, of equipping people, not just in what they believe, but why they believe it? Don't you think it might mean rehearsing some of the answers that might yeah. come up? So, well, I mean, on, on the one hand, I think that question is, is important and valid, and I agree with you and the direction that you're taking it. I think that um, the way we frame it is, it's like Batman has a, a, a utility belt, right? 
and he has these different gadgets for different situations. And these gadgets have, you know, various uses and, and the right gadget for the right situation. And he puts them on his belt so he can be ready. He puts them on his belt, Shane, <laughs> yeah. so that he can be ready. Always. You know, always ready um, after dark to administer vigilante justice to would-be criminals on the streets of Gotham, right? And the point, you know, that I think you're trying to make that I actually agree with is we should have like a quiver full of answers and some ready replies and a few go-to arguments, let's say, or defenses. And so um, to your question... I guess my point would be like the parent or the pastor who is trying to give their kids and parishioners muscle memory that just like the military folks have to be on ready they're gotta yes. be they gotta be ready to fight anytime yep um in the same way to be always ready to give an answer it should be their job to introduce them to the questions that are going to come up so that when your kid goes off to college or even in high school this isn't the first time they've heard that objection and yep. they have some resources to know where to maybe go yes we think of it as inoculation. Yeah. Right? Um, you get a little bit of it. You build up the antibodies. When you're exposed to the real deal, your body can fight it off, right? Um, you really do want to expose students to the kinds of questions that they're going to encounter in the real world before they get into the real world. Yeah. And that having that muscle memory, as you said, having that ready response is very important. As a matter of fact, I actually think that classical and evidential apologetics should be part of spiritual formation that, you know, could even in some ways maybe be incorporated into a contemporary catechism. I, I think that there are a lot of great tools out there for discipleship and spiritual formation. And, and yet it's all about, this is what we believe. And I think there's just this extra step that we're missing. And that's, this is why we believe it. I think that that needs to be baked in to all of our discipleship. I think that, you know, having some sort of a, a catechism that really incorporates common objections and really well thought answers that undergird and support our theological convictions, yeah. somebody should do that. For me personally, I like my grab bag of go to ideas and lines of questioning and reasoning. And yet there have been times where I felt a strong internal conviction that I need to throw the playbook out the window. You know, Jeremy, as I read through the book of Acts, I'm often struck by the fact that everywhere the apostles went, they were continually pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Mm. Do you think this idea of fulfilled prophecy is perhaps an underutilized apologetic approach in our day? I really, really do. I think it's underutilized. And actually, Shane, you've really uh, convicted me on this. A lot of times people, young people especially, will, they'll come to us with questions about, you know, what should I be looking for in a church? And the best I can say is, hey, Acts 2.42, you need to be somewhere where they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and to, you know, the breaking of bread and sacraments and those kinds of things. And when I started zeroing in on what the apostles were actually teaching, with your help, I realized that there's this whole line of reasoning and argumentation baked into our own source materials that I don't use as much as I should. And I haven't heard other apologists use it as much as maybe they should. I agree. I think that we need to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And what did the apostles teach? That Jesus is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows, all the prophecies. Imagine, you know, a first century Jew, like seeing for the first time all these types and shadows and these festivals and rituals culminating in this person. That's unbelievably cool. Like it's earth shattering, like to see it all happen in your front yard. And, uh, and yeah, so anyway, sorry, I, I, I do think it's an under utilized tool um, or gadget in our, you know, Batman utility belt, right? The apologist's utility belt, definitely an underutilized tool. So a few years ago, you took a poll of parents and students at a homeschool convention here in Missouri, and you got some really interesting results. Talk about that. Yes. Um, so this was eye-opening 
And I can't remember the exact number of students that were surveyed, but it, it was in the hundreds for sure. It was a, a homeschool conference in Missouri, operated and ran by card-carrying evangelicals in the homeschool community. And we asked a lot of questions, but the big question was, are you a Christian? There are only three options. Yes, no, or I'm not sure. And it was broken up into thirds. A third of those students said yes. A third of those students said I'm not sure. And a third of those students said no. But 90 plus percent of the parents marked yes. Their kids were most certainly professing Christians, active, engaged Christians. So if it's thirds, then two-thirds or 66% of the kids in these conservative homeschool families were either unsure or knows. That's exactly right. Now, granted, to be really fair, um, some of those I'm not sures could be, I want to be, but I don't know if God wants me, right? I mean, there there could be some of that, or, or I'm not sure if I identify with the same Christianity that my parents identify with. Yeah. So I think in that not sure category, there probably are some exactly. real Christians. Still, that's a huge number, 66% of the unsure and, and no. Right. And then if you just take the no, that 33%, that's interesting that you're catching that number at a conservative Christian homeschool convention, 33% said, no, I'm not a Christian, mm-hmm. when their parents thought they would be. Yes, that is that is accurate. And it's it's not the only survey that we've done that, that gave us some surprising results. Although I must say, post-2015, nothing surprises me, right. right? A lot of the goalposts have moved. But my point in bringing that up is just to say that, uh, you know, we're, we're living in a cultural moment where not only is it, like, not so cool to be a Christian, but it's actually pretty cool to be an ex-Christian. Yeah. And there's a lot of social capital that comes with denouncing evangelical Christianity. Do you think it's difficult for kids in some church contexts to be open about their doubts? Yes, I do. Um, And it's unfortunate. And there are a lot of reasons. I think, you know, just, I mean, on the face of it, like simple answer, a lot of pastors and parents, um, they're not equipped to answer these tough questions. And so I think when those questions come up, there's a fear response and they just want to shut it down. I do think that there's a, a lot of just fear motivated knee jerk responses. Like, how dare you ask that question? Or what is wrong with you? We've gone over this a hundred times. So I think there there are a couple of different things going on. In, in some cases, even students that come from churches that have, let's say, you know, safe spaces for dialogue, for questions, for doubts and objections, they still have to live there. Even if your youth pastor is super understanding and very open, even if your parents are super understanding and very open, it's hard sometimes to say, I'm not so sure about this very important family value. Um, I mean, admitting something like there's this really important Christian idea that I'm not sure I believe, or there's this really like a a sticky denominational distinctive or this particular viewpoint. And I'm just really wrestling with this. And again, even if you have people uh, that are comfortable with those questions and are not defensive, I think it's still really hard to admit that in your own home, in your own church, because you have to live there. Like you have to see these people all the time, right? And now you're the oddball until you get back on track. So I think that even students that have like pretty safe people they can go to, I think they're reluctant to open up. Not every kid's going to open up and be honest. And so they have to take their questions and their doubts and their objections to other circles where they're not quite so connected. Do you think churches can sometimes cause problems when they treat a non-essential issue such as the age of the earth as a kind of litmus test for orthodoxy? Shane, I've seen far too many train wrecks related to that. I've watched young people essentially throw away their Christian beliefs because they were brought up to believe that if if you don't um, adhere to this like particular view 
on this non-essential issue, well, you just can't be a Christian. And if you don't adhere to this particular interpretation of this really important passage, or actually I should say it this way, if you don't adhere to this particular interpretation of this obscure passage, then you know, you've started down this slippery slope to theological liberalism and you're out of the camp, you're out of the tribe, you're ostracized. And I think that's more caught than taught in most situations. Like, I don't think a lot of pastors are standing at their pulpit saying, you know, you're, you're going to be excommunicated if you don't believe this thing. But I think it's just a general posture and it's in the air and there's a vibe and a tone and an energy, as the kids say. And you used the example, so I'll just run with it, like the age of the earth, right? There are a lot of students that I've met that, thank goodness, they were introduced to options. And while we don't take a hardline stance on the age of the earth, for example, you know, again, we have opinions amongst the board members and they're differing opinions and those conversations are interesting, but our position is actually that kids should hear a steel man argument from the best representatives, you know, in those different camps. And that we're going to, you know, ask questions about the strengths and the weaknesses of the varying positions, because there are some, right, in every every point of view on these issues. And so we want students to know that, that you actually have options. And to see these students sometimes, it's almost like this, this sigh of relief. Like, wait a second, you mean to tell me that there are theologically conservative Christians that have different perspectives on the age of the earth. Like there are actually other camps and these are real Christians. Like for some students that they've never even heard an opinion outside of what mom and dad have said, aside from maybe, um, you know, atheists and and scientists that are really pushing like a, a, a more secular, more naturalistic explanation for origins. Right. And, and so they think, well, there's two options. There's what, you know, Dawkins says, or there's what pastor, you know, so-and-so says. It's really upsetting when I hear students that are essentially told their doubts somehow make them less Christian. And what I've been learning and, and what I'm seeing and, and what a lot of, you know, my friends and, and even mentors are uh, helping me to see is is that when you first become a Christian, if you picture your knowledge of Christianity as a tiny dot. That dot contains just a couple of key ideas, right? Maybe it's just the simplest form of the gospel. Well, as you expand outward and you learn more about uh, the history of Christianity and all the various uh, doctrines and ideas and the denominational distinctives and the things that you know Christians believe and the, some of the things that Christians argue about— as that circle of knowledge about Christianity gets bigger and bigger, it just creates more room for questions and doubts. And I think it's not just okay, but it's really healthy to ask questions about the things that you're learning. And it's okay even to have doubts until you have enough information. Our own source documents encourage us to question, to test, to verify, and double-check, triple-check. Make sure it corresponds to reality. Make sure it corresponds to everything else in the book, right? Christians have, I think, missed a big chunk of what the Bible is, is telling us to do. Just to bring this full circle, you, you asked me about you know, how I got into apologetics, and I'm telling you, because Jesus is the true and better apologist. Yeah. I see in Jesus and in his followers, right in the New Testament, I see them constantly answering questions, answering objections, helping to remove roadblocks yep. that are making it difficult for people to see the gospel clearly. And depending on the person, different Tactics are are important and necessary. The way Paul talks to the philosophers in Athens is different than the way he talks to the Jews in the synagogue. Yep. And whatever these questions are that these young people have, that is our apologetics task. Last year at our big summer camp, one of the most well-received talks that we did was called 
the rise and fall of pastoral trust. Hmm. Riffing off of a very popular podcast that you, you probably heard of. And and uh, we had multiple pastors and a couple of pastors' kids that had survived scandals and church splits yeah. and division. And we talked about what that looks like. And And in some ways, it was like this process of naming it, shining a light on it, and then grieving corporately. Yeah. I mean, there were tears in the room, and not every kid in that room has gone through a church split, but every kid in that room has watched a hero fall. I don't think there's a tribe left that can say, our village is without its scandals, yeah. right? Every denomination has had its trouble, and, and kids see that, right? And they resonate with that, and they wonder about that, and um, that isn't a typical traditional apologetics line of argumentation. And yet it's a real objection. It's a real question. Um, More than ever, we're trying to uh, just love the people that are in front of us and to love them enough to take their questions, their objections, their hurts seriously. We don't want to offer bumper sticker pat answers to these hard questions. All right. Hey, my guest has been Jeremy Smith the founder of Rethink 315. And Jeremy, thanks for being my guest on the Humble Skeptic Podcast. It was my pleasure, Shane. Well, folks, thanks for joining me for this episode. If you'd like more information about the work of Rethink 315 or their upcoming summer camp at St. Louis University this coming July, featuring Jeremy Smith, Michael McClymond, myself, and many other speakers, you can find information about this event in the show notes. Also, if you're a fan of the show, please consider rating this podcast or writing a positive review preferably via the Apple Podcast app. If you're a really big fan of the show and would like to see it continue, please share episodes with friends and family and consider signing up as a paid subscriber through Substack. We also have a tip jar and tax-deductible giving options, which you can also find in the show notes. The web address is humbleskeptic.com. That's humbleskeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Our lives.